the leak and what it unleashed. Abortion is a part of health care. Focus is now on the future. It is something that we've been praying about for years. Besides the debate, a look at the draft and the dynamics from the middle. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. New rules for schools and the history of race. To provide those lessons without imposing responsibility on someone who did not commit the act. It makes it okay to talk about overcoming without describing what was overcome. Now a teacher who lived the history has questions for the governor. And Formula One ready to race in South Florida. All live, all hour, all on this Mother's Day edition of This Week in South Florida. Happy Mother's Day, Mama, and to everyone else, good morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is away. We begin with what is clearly the story of the week, the leak, and the fallout. Fallout without a clear vision of what's to come. Because the U.S. Supreme Court's draft opinion leaked this week that indicates conservative justices would overturn 50 years of legal precedent and abortion rights may change or not. And that puts the focus more clearly on the individual states, especially in Florida, and the new state law here adding unprecedented restrictions on a decision to end a pregnancy. The arguments for abortion rights and against abortion itself are some of the most ingrained and intractable positions of any debated issue. There is likely no arguments that can change that. Here, we acknowledge and respect all of those positions, and we begin with questions meant to unravel the context of a leaked opinion, what we can learn and expect next. Howard Wasserman is a law professor at Florida International University and a contributor to SCOTUS blog, the independent news and analysis of the U.S. Supreme Court. It is great to have you with us, Howard. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I want to start out with um, kind of an overview of this shockwave that went through locally, nationally, when this opinion was leaked and Politico revealed that. Is that unprecedented? It is unprecedented for the opinion or for a draft opinion uh, to get out uh, this far in advance of a likely decision. There, there have been other cases in which the results of a case, even the votes of a case, um, have gotten out to the to the media a, a few days or a few weeks before the decision, including uh, Roe v. Wade itself. Um, but this is the first time that we've seen uh, a draft opinion come out ahead of come out to the public ahead of time um, with information about who authored that opinion and really nothing else, where we're guessing at who else was in that majority and what they might do when they when they get get the draft opinion. And by the time this leaked, the draft was almost three months old. Exactly. Actually, that was kind of my next question. So a three month old draft. Take us through the process. Is that likely to be an opinion court? You know, understanding that there is no way to know that stipulated that. But where and how it, how does this process go? Where is this draft in the process? Is it likely to change? Can it change? And can the leak of what was in it be a, a catalyst for change either way? 
Uh, so in no particular, yes, it can change. Um, it very often will. Um, will it make a difference in anybody's vote? I kind of doubt it. Um, so the way the process works is, is after the justices hear argument in a case and have read all the brief and have read all the briefing, uh, they meet in conference at the end of the week and they go around uh, the conference table in order of seniority and they indicate how they think the case should come out and some reasoning for that. And then uh, either the chief justice or if the chief justice is not in the majority, the senior most associate justice assigns the opinion to one member of that majority who then retreats to his chambers or her chambers um, with their clerks and writes a draft of the opinion. And then once the draft is written, it gets circulated to all the members of the court. Um, to and then you get into this this back and forth and editing process where uh, members of the court indicate that they will join that opinion. Members of the court indicate some changes that they would like to see, um, uh, uh, or some or some edits. And there's a there's an ongoing process among anywhere from five to nine people who are editing this thing. Um, it really is a, 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 a an unusual way to draft something. Um, so we have no idea of what's going on internally. We know what Justice Alito circulated to his colleagues on February 10th, and we don't know what is happening uh, uh, in the interim and what sort of back and forth and suggestions uh, he's gotten on, on, on what to do with the opinion going forward. So after this draft from February, is it likely that there are other drafts on the way to what we expect will be a, a summer release of the decision? Um, likely, likely, depending on what sort of feedback he got. Um, uh, if five justices uh, or if four other justices immediately joined onto the opinion, uh, maybe he didn't have to change anything. Um, if he got some specific suggestions uh, from uh, from members of that majority, he might change. To, he might have already made some changes to accommodate those. If other opinions have already circulated, for example, there's almost certainly going to dissent. If this is the majority, there's almost certainly going to be a dissent. Um, if the dissent has circulated, the justice writing the majority opinion um, will edit that, uh, will make changes to his draft to respond to uh, some of the criticisms and comments in the dissenting opinion. So I want to, I, I, you have read the opinion, I just want to make sure, because I want to get into some yes. of the arguments. Okay, I don't want to hang you up with any surprises there. That's not what we're about here. So I want to get into some of what Justice Alito wrote in his draft opinion. Um, right off the bat, he writes, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was weak. What, again, a lot of what we talk about, we're asking to sort of read in and analyze, but analysis, expert analysis is, I think, critically important with what the country is going through right now. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Um, where would a Supreme Court justice come up with that after 50 years? Because he takes, I mean, he can come up with it because that is the view that's been taken in a lot of legal scholarship and a lot of judicial opinions, including some written by Justice Alito um, uh, over the years. Uh, his, 
this opinion coming from him is not surprising. He's made his views uh, about the the existence of the constitutional right to reproductive freedom very clear that he doesn't believe such a right exists. Uh, he's made that he made that clear in things he wrote outside of court. He made that clear in things he wrote as a member of the Court of Appeals, and he has made it clear in his writings or opinions that he has joined uh, as a member of of the Supreme Court. Um, and so that language is doing a very a, a very particular thing, um, which is courts operate under a principle of stare decisis, um, which means that a court has to follow the legal principles established in uh, prior decisions by that court. And the, but, but a court also has the power to um, overrule prior decisions, basically to make an exception to stare decisis, um, under certain conditions. Um, and one of those one of the things that that takes into account is whether the decision that we're considering overruling was wrong, whether it got the constitutional question wrong. And that's not the that can't be the only basis, or at least it shouldn't be the only basis, but it is a consideration. And so what Alito is, by starting his opinion that way, what he is doing is really laying down the marker that they're not going to follow Roe and Casey and, and, and the other cases that have recognized um, this right for the starting point that the decision was wrong. And so the time has come to overrule it. So that is Justice Alito's headline. There are a couple of other things right out of that 98 pages that I, I would like you to weigh in on. We need to take a quick break, so we will be back in two minutes. Very good. are back with Howard Wasserman, uh, FIU law professor, contributor to SCOTUS blog, analyzing some portions of the 98-page leaked uh, draft opinion that Justice Alito um, wrote. A couple of things, Howard, that I found um, particularly interesting to, for you to analyze, and one of them is uh, picking up on our conversation from the last segment. He says the Constitution makes no reference to abortion. This is right out of the 98 pages. No such right, he says, is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Um, and while that may be technically true, aren't there so many rights that 200 and some odd years ago were not explicitly or implicitly in the Constitution? And why does that matter? Well, the, the, the language he used is very interesting because this is something that Justice Kavanaugh raised uh, during the argument in this case, which is this, the Constitution is silent about this, and so the Constitution is neutral. It doesn't take an opinion one uh, it doesn't take a position on reproductive freedom one way or another. Um, which is a which is a, a very uh, uh, weighted way of of framing it because saying that the Constitution is neutral is another way of saying there is no such right and it is entirely left to uh, it's entirely left to the political process. Um, this the the language that he used is why a lot of people are 
uh, are concerned uh, about this ultimately being the, the opinion of the court, um, not only because of what it does to reproductive freedom, which, which is a big deal, but also that that language uh, may carry with it um, the at, at least the, the suggestion that other um, other cases that have relied on uh, or that have protected unenumerated rights, rights that don't exist, uh, liberties that that are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution, also are on the chopping block. That a and, future and opinion, which which might be an example. Give us some examples. Uh, uh, the right to obtain and use contraception, uh, the right to marriage equality the right to uh, uh, intimate romantic association with a person of your choosing, um, the right of parents to control uh, to control their, their, their child's upbringing, their, their child's schooling. All of these uh, exist under the idea of what is called substantive due process. So the 14th Amendment uh, to the Constitution says no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. And what the court has recognized through the word liberty is that there are certain individual liberties that uh, are protected from uh, from government infringement. Even though they are not mentioned, they are built into the concept of liberty. Um, and the court has used the rubric to protect uh, a number of these rights over the years, uh, some of which uh, Justice Alito has been on the, in the dissent on, notably uh, uh, marriage equality. And so a lot of people are reading this as also laying the groundwork for um, uh, for possibly overruling those decisions uh, um, for the same reason, that these decisions are wrong, they are not deeply rooted in history and tradition, and so the decisions recognizing those are wrong and should be overruled. And, and frankly, some Republican-controlled legislatures uh, are already uh, doing the same thing. So there is a proposal it's been introduced in Idaho uh, by one member of the legislature to eliminate certain forms of contraception. Um, and so the states are reading the tea leaves as much as rights holders are reading the tea leaves. You know, I, I want to ask you um, a question that may probably take you more than a minute and a half to answer, which is what we have left in our segment. Um, but what is really interesting about the whole abortion rights issue is how steeped in morality and religion it is. And it may be confusing to a lot of people that justices base a lot of their opinions and how they read into the Constitution on morality and religion, when in fact the very first line of the First Amendment to the Constitution prevents the government from bringing religion into uh, into the the equation, and and I wonder if if you could sort that out for us. Well, I think at at some level it's an impossible task because every judge comes into a case with her own priors, um, our experiences, our our history, um, and that includes things like uh, like religious beliefs. So they they are going to inform how we uh, they are going to form how everyone looks at the world, and and that's also true of judges. 
Um, judges also look at our, 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 our test with, with following principles like stare decisis and, and, and following what the courts that came before, before them have, have done. Um, but it, it really is an impossible task, I think, to ask a judge to ignore something as fundamental to their being as as their religion, just as it's impossible to ask any person uh, to, to do that. And so we hope judges won't, will do more than simply impose their own sense of religiosity or their own sense of morality uh, into the law. Um, but it's impossible to ask a judge to separate that entirely from their decision making. Howard Wasserman, I want you to know that during the break, our producer said in my ear that he learned more from these segments than he has from any news story this week. So we appreciate your time. Thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. And up next, a view from the trenches, a nurse who directs Miami-Dade County's Commission for Women. The implications of the Supreme Court's decision on abortion rights gives Florida's new law a new focus. Monica Skoko Rodriguez is a nurse, formerly for Planned Parenthood. She is the director of Miami-Dade's Commission for Women. Monica, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me today. So you and I met this week at an abortion rights protest, uh, part of the backlash to the leaked opinion. Um, clearly, you are pro-abortion rights, and um, you are also in your capacity for the county. Uh, the county, actually, and your commission put out a similar statement, and I, I want you to um, tell me a little bit about the backgrounding and sort of inside baseball of the co your county position, because this is a political football, and um, and you are riding a very interesting line there. So if you would, how did, how did the county as a whole react to the commission putting out a statement like that? So the Commission for Women has held uh, historically that abortion is a part of health care. It is that simple. It is not for us to decide uh, what a, a person wants to do with their body. It is not for us to, to decide the uh, very intimate uh, decisions that a patient makes with their healthcare provider, that is really up to uh, uh, the person themselves. And uh, we really support bodily autonomy and uh, and the fact that abortion is healthcare as a board. And I, I do want to clarify, uh, I am a board member of Ruthless Miami, a board member of Women's Emergency Network Abortion Fund, and that's really the, the, cap the capacity I'm here today in um, and as a former nurse with Planned Parenthood. So uh, I, although the, the, the County Commission for Women vehemently supports these rights, um, I am here in those capacities today. Understood, and we are happy to have you in all, uh, any and all of those capacities. And I do want to take this time to say we did invite to be with us today uh, a variety of people who are against abortion rights and um, and against abortion as a whole, including the two lawmakers, both women in the House and the Senate, who carried the bills for Florida's new law, who had uh, very you know passionate floor speeches. They declined, as as did everyone that we invited. Um, just want to make that very clear. So the Florida's new law now a focus on whether this is going to be back to the individual states. Florida's new law, as it stands, restricts the ability to to terminate a pregnancy to the first 15 weeks. Very, very few exceptions, including no exceptions for victims of crime. And um, 
And so I was looking at the Department of Health's website. That that is about 96% of all abortions uh, are are still going to be legal if the numbers hold. And so about four, I think four percent of abortions would be affected by this law. Weigh in on that, if you would. So you're correct. The majority of abortions do take place in the first trimester. But I, I think it's really important to zoom back into what I was talking about, the very private right of a, a patient to have this connection with their provider without outside interference. And uh, there are so many different uh, factors and and things that might influence a person to need an abortion post 15 weeks. There are di so many different factors, including uh, the influence of crisis pregnancy centers who knowingly uh, will miscalculate uh, how far along a pregnancy is for a woman. Um, we, we know that it can take a very long time to get the funding together, get the child care together, because yes, a lot of the folks that, that I uh, served as a nurse uh, already were parents, already were mothers. So there are so many factors to getting that appointment, getting to that appointment. I had so many patients who had to fly in from other countries, who had to drive up from Key West. So, so really, at this point, we should be uh, making abortion more accessible for folks, making it more affordable. Uh, we shouldn't be going backwards because before Roe was enacted, about 5,000 people would die every year from complications due to unsafe abortions. We cannot go back there. So part of this new law, I should say in addition to this new law, the Florida legislature did take a number of other steps to beef up funding and programming for maternal health. Part of this new law is maternal health and prenatal health. I just want to, uh, in fairness, just take a couple of minutes and listen to what the governor had to say this week about the potential constitutionality of Florida's new abortion bill law. If you look at the protections that I signed into law a couple weeks ago, those were the strongest that Florida has seen in decades. Uh, our, our view is that those are fully consistent with the federal constitution. And I know you had the Dobbs case pending, but we really believe uh, that we're gonna end up okay on that. Now we're mindful that we also will be challenged under the Florida constitution and, and, and statutes. Uh, we think we're gonna win there, but, but that is gonna be something you know, that we're gonna have to do. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's a mistake to read the federal constitution to completely prohibit any uh, pro-life protections. That's not consistent with the text history structure. So I, listening to the governor talk, listening to Utah, sometimes listening to this debate, you realize that people live in parallel universes that will not cross over ever. Um, but how do you expect if Roe v. Wade does come to be overturned, if states' individual laws will rule, how do you expect, practically speaking, that will affect abortion access in this state? You know, I do want to just take a second and clarify that this was a leaked draft like you were talking about prior. Yeah. Um, this is not set in stone. There are currently no changes in the law based on this draft. So it's really important for people watching this to know that they can still receive the same care in the same way in our state. And even that 15-week ban doesn't take effect until July. So, uh, but, you know, we are living in, in this world and uh, most experts do believe that this will become a reality. So um, I 
I do think it's important to acknowledge that abortion is safe. Overturning Roe will not make it go away. It will force people into the shadows and force people to have unsafe abortions. We know that abortions are incredibly safe and chances of complications are about one in 1,000. And so what does that mean in practical terms? To put it into context, uh, there are the same odds of having a complication from an abortion as you might have uh, the, the need to receive emergency treatment in the next year from an injury that you sustained while using a can or a jar. So very low incidence of, of complications or problems. Abortion doesn't increase risk of breast cancer, risk of infertility. It improves mental health for a lot of folks um, that, are, that are in this difficult situation, making this difficult choice. But you're, you're, so see, with you, all of that are. said, you have to acknowledge that uh, the Republican Party's interest in banning abortion in the United States can only stem from a desire to control women as well as black, brown, indigenous, queer, and immigrant people and you deny know, I, us I the will right say, to control our I actually, in all the coverage that we did and all the time we spent in Tallahassee listening to the floor debates, I didn't hear that intention at all, what I heard, um, and take this for what it will. I, I heard a very uh, religious-based argument for people who wanted to, and, and I'm going to quote a couple of the sponsors, who wanted to save babies. Uh, that would be their intention. And again, this is one of those issues where it is an intractable opinion on both sides, but I, and I, let me get just um, real quickly a, a little personal view from someone who is looking at abortion as healthcare and ve vehemently pro-choice. A lot of the um, the arguments from the other side, people who are against abortion rights, call themselves pro-life, and I want to get a sense of how do you hear that when someone who opposes you calls themselves pro-life. It is very frustrating to hear. When I hear somebody describe themselves as pro-life, I am wondering uh, in, what, in what context that can really apply because we know where abortion is illegal or highly restricted that women will die. Like I said before, before Roe, an estimated 5,000 women died every year from complications to abortion. So really, I believe that treating abortion as a necessary part of reproductive health care is pro-life, right? Treating women and people who are trying to receive care as a complete person, that is pro-life. Making sure that children have the, the necessary care and women who, like I said, already have children in, in many circumstances are able to care for those children in, in in the best way possible, that is pro-life. Taking care of people, providing social support, that is pro-life. And I'm not seeing any of that from the Republican Party. Uh, I hope we will hear from some of those people in our segments to come. Uh, Monica Skoko Rodriguez, we value your time and so appreciate you weighing in for us today. And happy Thank Mother's Day. Thank you so Day. much for having me. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, thanks. And up next, another one of Florida's newest laws restricts the way teachers teach the history of black America. One South Florida teacher wants to know whether he can share his and his family's firsthand experiences.
Florida's new individual freedom law became one of the most controversial. Sponsors say it puts guardrails on teaching racial history to ensure it's factual and does not instill guilt in students about their own race. The governor calls it, in fact, the Stop Woke Act. Marvin Dunn, he's one of South Florida's most respected teachers, historian, author of several books on South Florida's black history, and he took to Twitter in a raw and personal thread, directing questions to the governor. Can I share that with students? Marvin Dunn with us right there on Zoom, still sitting up, setting up the Zoom shot. Marvin, great to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, boy, that thread, um, it was riveting to me with photos. We'll see some of those. It was riveting to so many people, really resonated. It was shared tens of thousands of times. And most, ans uh, most uh, ended with a question to the governor about whether you could share your experiences. Did you get an answer? No, I did not get an answer. Uh, what happened was that about uh, three or four days after the purchase of Twitter took place, I was no longer able to put up any uh, political questions to the governor. Everything I put up was taken down immediately. By, uh, by very, Twitter very, very, was taken down? By Twitter, not by the governor, by Twitter. I am being monitored 24-7 by Twitter. Anything that I put up that mentions the name DeSantis or the name of any prominent Republican gets taken down immediately. Well, that's curious. Uh, and. Um, you know, I actually, I think we'll we'll help you look into that because what I read did not violate any Twitter rules at all. Um, I'm going to ask you: Can you turn down your volume a little bit? We're still under. COVID I'm not sure protocols. you can do that. I'll miss. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Then we then we will muddle through. Um, so let me just put up one such photo and one such tweet, and this was one of the first ones I saw. And it's from, it's a, you're in your um, naval uniform. This was 1966, it looks like. And your tweet with this photograph is that UF, University of Florida, refused your admission to graduate school because you were black and that you have that letter. And you received the letter while you were an aircraft carrier serving your country. Yes. And you asked the governor if you could share that. And why wouldn't you be able to share that heartbreaking fact? I, I don't know why I would not be able to do it. Um, the problem is that there has been uh, a creation of a, of, a, of a problem that doesn't really exist. Trying to teach children history that's difficult to, to translate other than emotion, like the history of the Holocaust, slavery, uh, what happened to Native Americans. We can't teach those kinds of things without evoking feelings in children. But no one is trying to indoctrinate children to feel guilty. I was asking the governor, tell us, please, one school in Florida where children in kindergarten to third grade are being indoctrinated with the gender identification classroom instructions. Where in Florida, anywhere in Florida, in any school in Florida, where white students are being told to feel guilty about something that their ancestors did. So it's all a, a, a false flag to, uh, to I think, attract uh, conservative voters. And it's unfair. Uh, Twitter is now, I think, under control of a new sheriff, and um, they're now, I think, censoring uh, criticisms of, of Republicans. Uh, well, let me, I, I actually do want to get into sort of the nitty gritty of that law with you in, in just a little bit, but I'd like to put up some more of those tweets because you lived the history that people should be learning and, and are learning, and you're teaching some of that. Um, can we put up some of these other photos? There's another photo of you as a naval recruit. And um, 
And in the tweet you mentioned, and then another of you as a young boy, and in these tweets you mentioned that in this particular one, you were sent to white schools. Uh, you lived in Volusia County, sent to white schools to pick up used books to learn in black schools because the white schools were getting new books. And you posed the question, is that institutional racism? And, and facts like this from firsthand experience, I, I can't find anything in the law that would prevent you from teaching that to your students. And I wonder, you do, you do have these courses. Have you planned to change what you teach because of this law? Not one syllable, not one word, not one thought, not one story will I change. The governor is in every classroom in Florida, and that's a tragedy for education. So no, I will not be in, I will not be intimidated by a bully. I'm not an eleventh grader. So no, I want my questions answered. Where are these things happening that that he DeSantis has to rush in and save parents from what? So I I, I still put these questions forward, and um, I try to do so respectively, and would hope that some at some point there would be an answer. I will say, let me say this though, uh, because of the problem of history being hidden, particularly difficult stories in black history. My website, donehistory.com, has the stories that are being suppressed that a lot of folks don't want people to know. And I, I'm putting my legacy there so that we don't have to go through politicians in order to get the truth to people who want to know. So donehistory.com, go there and learn the history directly yourself. There, there is a push nationwide and has been to, especially under critical race theory, which is not taught in elementary schools in Florida, but which is, as, as you know, I'm just talking about this for maybe people who don't, it's a, it's a curriculum to show how racial inequities uh, in our country have led to modern day social and institutional inequities. And a large part of that is a very difficult beginnings and, and, and uh, history of black America. But I want to read from you, uh, to you, from the law that now exists in Florida that the governor signed. And it says, and I'm reading verbatim, it prevents instruction that one race is morally superior, that it prevents instruction that someone is inherently racist, or that moral character is determined by race. And the last thing is particularly resonant from what you were just talking about, it prevents any teaching that uh, that a child or a person would bear responsibility and has to feel anguish or guilt because of the actions of others of his or her same race or national origin. And I personally can't see anything in any of your instructive materials and photographs and, and raw and difficult things to learn that would be prevented from being taught by this law. Can you, can you specify? I, I can't specify. I don't know any school that allows students to be taught that they should be ashamed of their race. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that's being taught in Florida schools. And if it were, if it is being taught, that, that school should be closed down. This is a false flag. It's not happening. Our kids are in good hands. We have teachers who know what they're doing. I cannot imagine a teacher in Florida telling a student, you should feel guilty because of something your ancestors did. Nobody alive in America today had slaves. That doesn't mean you can't recognize the fact that this was a national flaw. Exactly right. So, for that. so right. So we're we're on the same page. So why not? Why wouldn't you be able to go ahead and and keep teaching exactly how you're teaching? I don't know. 
and I don't intend to change. And when education becomes this politicized, where we cannot identify the problems that we say parents should be energized to take care of, no one can give me an example where that exists. What is this all about? Except for a political uh, false flag to stampede conservative voters. Marvin Dunn, um, we will absolutely look into why Twitter might be censoring you, so stay tuned for that. And, um, and I just want everyone to know that you have been such a longtime advocate and teacher and historian in South Florida. I think I've learned more from you over the years than any single person I know about black history, and I so appreciate your time and being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, up next, if you hear some loud roar, and it isn't thunder, it may be the start of Formula One in South Florida. Why that matters, live trackside. Take a look at Hard Rock Stadium, a live look. South Florida's first Formula One race will speed off right there in just a few hours. The big event at Hard Rock in Miami Gardens. The fanfare, though, is elsewhere, right down the road. Local 10 sports director Will Manso gets a big guest spot on this week in South Florida. Will, so much fun to have you. Wow, what? I, I see why it matters to the people you're with. Why does Formula One matter to South Florida this weekend? First of all, I feel honored to be on the show, and I'm glad it takes a huge event like this. This is, <laughs> I guess, the best way to answer the question, Glenn, is this is like a Super Bowl. I mean, it is a traveling Super Bowl. F1 has 22 stops on the circuit this year. This is the first year for Miami. And what you see behind me and what you'll see in the video that we play of, you know, the grounds here, the fans, the drivers, all the hoopla around it, is a traveling Super Bowl in the 22 cities it goes to, and it literally is all around the world. We were in Italy a few weeks ago for the race in Imola to get a taste of Formula One, and everyone you go it is the biggest event not just in that city but in that country that tells you what the epicenter of f1 is for everywhere it goes and here in south florida it's a big deal because it's only the second city in the united states to have an f1 race austin was first miami is second las vegas is next year and what they're doing glenn is they're really trying to get the appeal of formula one that already exists worldwide into the American market, and they're doing a pretty good job of it so far. So South Florida is definitely no stranger to big events and definitely no stranger to big money events. Uh, for F1, a lot of cars, a lot of handsome drivers, a lot of uh, luxury. You know, your, your producer was telling me that there is a fake marina, fake water, real yachts there. Seems like this is a pretty high-end kind of event. Is, is there a fan base for this here already, or is F1 trying to lure that kind of big money fan base in? I think the honest answer is it's both. I think there is a Formula One market in South Florida, given the popularity of the sport in Brazil and the Brazilian, obviously, the amount of Brazilian people that we have living in South Florida and also the European influence, French, British, you name it, Italian, especially given that Ferrari is having a great year. You have that local influence, but I think the diehard sports fan in America that watches football and baseball and basketball, it's almost a niche market to this point where they enjoy Formula One, they know about it, but maybe they're not wrapped into it. And the, the interesting thing, Glenn, 
China, too, is that the way that this kind of came to be in the last few years was actually via Netflix, of all things. During the pandemic, Netflix had a show that still exists called Drive to Survive, where it kind of follows every moment of these races and these drivers, and it almost became a soap opera. So people were at home, bored during the pandemic, not being able to go anywhere, working from home, and this show became a huge hit. They already picked up seasons five and six for it as they're in season four now. So that appeal has grown. Lewis Hamilton's a big superstar. He has 28 million Instagram followers. He's the seven-time world champ. So I think they're building what they have, but also looking for a new audience as well. And you know, you as a sports director of Local 10, you did some really serious research. You had to endure a trip to <laughs> Italy to do this research on F1. So I'm wondering, I mean, in all seriousness, the people of Miami Gardens, they, a lot of people have been fighting it. They're afraid of the noise. You were right there when, in your trip to Italy to an F1 race. Is the noise really going to be a concern there? Or what did, tell me what you learned in Italy besides eating pasta. Well, for First of all, you're the best for this reason. Your timing is impeccable because they just started some horse <laughs> racing and you'll probably hear some of the noise going around. You can kind of get a we sense do. for it. To we answer do. your question, is it? Yeah, it's it's loud. It's loud, Glenn. It, it really is loud. And to the communities around, you know, I went to Imola, which that community is built around the race. It's a very small town in Italy. It's picturesque, it's beautiful, but they gear up every year for the history of that race. Here, it's different. We have no history. Everything is built around the stadium and the hoopla and the pool and the fake marina you talked about. It's an event town, so it's almost like the racing itself is secondary up until today. But the people that live in this area, there's no doubt it's loud. I can see why there are complaints from people that live around here. There's just no way around it. These cars are going over 200 miles per hour in a close track and you're going to hear it from a long distance away. I don't think there's any way to really solve that. It's just part of what racing is. You know, we were talking about how so many of the ancillary events that are connected to F1 or and, or maybe piggybacking on F1 are in different parts of the town. There's really, you know, you mentioned the Super Bowl, who then the Super Bowl usually brings the NFL experience and sets up the big tents and it's a real community event. W what is the community spirit here? Or, or does F1, is that part of the F1 culture? I think the community feel is what they're trying to do and that's you know I credit the Dolphins for what they did and, and Stephen Ross and Tom Garfinkel what they've created here they've really tried to make it an initiative in the community not just in Miami Gardens but you know we had crews in Miami Beach obviously we had crews in Wynwood I know they've had big events in Fort Lauderdale as well and then again the surrounding areas here around the stadium they're trying to build that base with these big events and I think you can always tell when something is big Lena when the celebrities come and just in the last 24 hours we've seen you know First Lady Michelle Obama we've seen Michael Douglas we've seen LeBron James. We've seen people from all walks of life, Tom Brady in town, musicians in town, concerts, Post Malone. This brings celebrities and A-listers to South Florida along with what it brings to the local fans that just want it to be a small part of it. Were you around in the 90s when the racing was up and down Biscayne Boulevard? Is, how does that compare? Yeah. You know, my first year at Channel 10 was in 1999, but I grew up in South Florida. You know, I was at UM around that time. You're talking mid-90s when that last time we had that race, and then early 80s we had a race, which is when I moved to South Florida. And to answer your question, it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. This sport has gotten so much bigger and louder and just worldwide. You go back to the days of Emerson Fittipaldi and Michael Schumacher even most recently. This new generation of drivers, the speed, the power, they didn't have social media then, Glenda. Now they relate in different ways. Now 
you're talking about these drivers appeal to all the masses because you mentioned earlier they're handsome guys they're rich guys they're successful and they drive very fast so that appeals <laughs> to a lot of people Will Masso, so much fun to have you on this week in South Florida. Maybe we make it a little bit permanent. I don't know. We'll talk about it. Thanks so much. I'm always done. <laughs> we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Watch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast. All you have to do is scan this QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. As always, we thank you for being with us. And remember, we are online 24-7. Happiest of Mother's Day to all. Especially happy Mother's Day to the one and only.